Welcome to the Italian Financial Advisor podcast, exploring all aspects of your financial life in Italy. I'm Andrew Lawford with the Spectrum IFA Group. Today we are going to tackle a topic of such scale that I will admit to being terrified to take it on, the Italian economy. However, I do think it's worth the effort, because it appears that Italy has arrived at a sort of crossroads, and by choosing to go down the route of a technical government led by Mario Draghi, is now all in on a pro-European solution to its problems. No doubt you are all aware of the recent developments, so I felt it would be a good idea to try and dig further into the main issues that we are facing. We're going to have some help in this episode from Austrian economist Philipp Heimberger, who came to my attention after he decided to run an unusually provocative Twitter campaign based on trying to get across some basic facts about the Italian economy that run counter to most of the stereotypes about the country. We should all agree that prejudice and stereotypes do nothing to enlighten any debate, and the continuing narrative of Italy as a profligate country, spending beyond its means, falls into the category of a simple lie that is easier to understand compared with the complicated truth that exists in reality. Economies are complicated systems, and economists are rarely able to explain them to us mere mortals in ways that we can understand them. As I heard a comedian put it, economics is essentially witchcraft in a pinstriped suit, the art of telling people what's going to happen and then explaining why it didn't. However, Dr. Heimberger has made the effort to simplify some complicated concepts in order to explain the situation on the basis of the available data. An article based on his Twitter posts is linked to in the show notes, as is his Twitter handle, should you wish to ponder these topics in greater detail. The main motivation behind this Twitter campaign was not that of telling Italians what they should and shouldn't be doing, but instead to counter the nonsense spilling forth from certain quarters elsewhere in Europe. The examples he shows of some magazine covers published in Northern Europe, whilst somewhat amusing, testify to a deep rift within the European Union that is based on little more than a well-worn stereotype. In one example, the industrious northern Europeans are depicted as being hard at work in a factory, whilst the southern Europeans are enjoying a glass of wine in the sun over a game of backgammon. You get the picture. Now before we get to the serious part of the discussion, I hope Philip won't mind me mentioning the history of the hashtags he applied to his Twitter campaign. It started off as the Campaign Against Nonsense About Italy, or Cani for short. This got me laughing because of course Cani means dogs in Italian, and there is also a saying, Cani e porci, which literally means dogs and pigs, and could best be translated as every man and his dog in English. The amusing point being that PIGS was the acronym used in the sovereign debt crisis to refer to the worst-hit countries in Europe's periphery. However, it turns out that this clever play on words was entirely unintentional, and so to avoid causing any offence, the hashtag was changed to CAIN, or Campaign Against Italy Nonsense. So without further ado, let's get on to the serious part of the podcast. And I should mention in advance that whilst I've tried to keep the economic concepts as simple as possible, the unavoidable conclusion from the discussion is that economies truly are complicated systems, and it is a fool's errand to try and oversimplify them. 
I thought it would be instructive to start by finding out how Italy took on the mantle of the sick man of Europe, a moniker that was once reserved for Germany. Now, I wanted to go back to a, a time, uh, you know, many years ago, um, Germany used to be known as the, the sick man of Europe, right? That was the, the title that was given. And then I can put a date on it, in fact, because there was that famous cover on The Economist magazine, and it was in May of 2005, and there was this terrible image of, of Italy propped up on, on crutches, and, uh, and it said, the real sick man of Europe, and, and what I wanted to ask you is what, what, what do people mean when they talk about the sick man of Europe anyway, um, and how did it get to the situation where Germany went from being the sick man of Europe, somehow passing that dishonour to, to Italy, and, and then after 15 years becoming you know, the dominant economic force in, in Europe, um, and I think this to some extent, the answer probably feeds into some of your comments about how the EU has served some countries very well and other countries much less well. Um, could you comment on, on that, please? Sure. What, what many people um, don't know or um, maybe, maybe simply forgot is that uh, actually unemployment in Italy was lower before the financial crisis than in Germany. But the reason why Germany was viewed as the sick man of Europe was that, um, well, their macroeconomic performance was not stellar uh, in the in the late 90s until the early early 2000s um, they fell behind relative to other peers uh, in in Europe but uh, even more so compared to uh, other large advanced um, countries and uh, both within Germany but also internationally there were these this, this discussions about why this was the case and and probably also one of the reasons why Schröder pushed this very uh, far-reaching um, uh, agenda when he became chancellor in the early 2000s with the labor market reforms, cut in unemployment benefits, etc., which is something that is still controversial in Germany. Um, but they were viewed as, as the segment of Europe. What, what changed? Well, basically, what changed is uh, there was uh, this European integration process and uh, the climax of this, this process was basically that the euro area was set up uh, and uh, Germany um, was the, the largest and uh, also politically strongest country in this newly established uh, euro area. And basically what we have seen uh, since the, the early 2000s in particular is uh, increasing uh, current account surpluses uh, of Germany. So uh, basically what you see is uh, Germany has been exporting much more in terms of goods and services than it imports. Um, and this is reflected in, in trade surpluses and current account surpluses. And these current account surpluses have increased over time. Um, so in the years before the COVID crisis, they, they stood at about 7 or 8% of GDP, which is really large, also in international comparison. Um, and so basically, I would argue that uh, setting up the, the, the euro area helped uh, German industry because the, the euro is... Um, relatively cheap for for um, these countries. So if Germany were to introduce its own national currency uh, again, this would most probably appreciate sharply, which uh, would make it more expensive for um, for German com um, companies to to export stuff. 
And then in, in addition, what has also happened is that uh, what, what Germany did starting in the early 2000s is to basically hold back in terms of wage increases. So wage increases were pretty low. It was basically what, what, what people in Germany call wage moderation. The idea there was also that this would improve export competitiveness and help vis-a-vis -vis other um, companies in other countries. And so this contributed also to um, basically a drag on um, domestic demand in Germany. So because wages didn't grow very fast, um, consumption uh, also did not develop as dynamically as in some other countries. And that also contributed to, to um, fewer imports from other countries and, and therefore also these trade surpluses and current account surpluses increase. This is something which um, is very much defended by, uh, by some political parties in, in Germany up to this day. So the, the Christian Democrats don't see any problems in running these uh, current account surpluses and uh, exporting much more in terms of goods and services than importing. But uh, unfortunately, there's an international dimension to this. And the international dimension is that, um, uh, well, if globally speaking, if one country runs these large surpluses, these large trade surpluses, other countries have to run deficits and they have to finance these deficits by um, actually increasing foreign debt. And uh, when you increase foreign debt, um, this means uh, that you are more prone to running into problems when there is, um, for example, a financial market crisis. Um, so that's why there has been a lot of criticism concerning uh, these uh, trade and current account surpluses in Germany over um, over recent years. Even even though I mean, it, Italy is has a similar situation, right? Because it has a trade surplus, which is one of the points that yes. you make. So between Germany and and Italy, they account for almost fifty percent of of EU um, industrial yes. production. So so Italy has somehow got the rough end of the stick as far as the Euro membership ha is concerned, even though its economy seems to be set up in a similar fashion to the German one vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, trade surpluses. So, you know, it's, it's mm -hmm. export orientation. How, how did that happen? How did, how did Italy get this rough deal uh, by entering into the, the euro if if indeed you think that's that's what brought it all about um, you're right one point i make um, by pointing to the data is that italy remains uh, the second largest um, industrial location in the eu by far so there's germany uh, which accounts for about 30% uh, of the total of industrial production then there is italy with 17% and then it takes quite a while before you see France and Spain uh, and all the others. Um, but obviously Italy has lost um, in, in terms of its share over the last 20 years. There is still a strong industrial core in the northern part um, of, of Italy, but there is a, a problem with um, price competitiveness, but also technological competitiveness um, in, in the Italian industry. I think, why, why, why are they on, on the rough end? They were, before they entered the euro area, they were able to dep depreciate their own, their, their own currency. And uh, they, they did so uh, quite, quite regularly. And this means that if you depreciate your currency, um, that basically it will become uh, instantly uh, cheaper for uh, the, the companies to, to export stuff. Um, and this is no longer possible um, now in the euro area because the exchange rates are fixed vis-a-vis -vis other 
Eurozone countries. So basically the, the option of um, devaluing the currency is, is no longer there. This, this has caused some problems with, with price competitiveness for also many Italian firms uh, in the industrial sector. There are important similarities uh, in terms of industrial structure between some parts of the German industry and some parts of the Italian industry, for example. You find that uh, Italian companies are still strong in mechanical engineering and pharmaceuticals. And so you find some similarities in the export baskets. But still, I think uh, one, one uh, important consideration is that Italian companies have suffered more because of competition from Asia. They have lost uh, in ex export shares uh, to countries or to firms that operate from countries outside um, the, the, the euro area. I mean, what, what German and obviously also that uh, the, the, the industrial relations and institutional framework in Italy is different from, from Germany. You can't directly compare that. Uh, and uh, obviously the, the system in Germany was um, better suited to, to entering this, this common monetary union. And certainly, um, I would argue, and, and most economists would agree, that setting up euro area was, uh, Germany benefited uh, a lot from this. As you've heard, currency depreciation was a big part of how Italy maintained price competitiveness in the pre-euro era. And it would indeed seem that the economic structure of some countries in Europe, with Germany being the prime example, was far better suited to the euro than was Italy which found itself competing in many segments of industrial production with Asia, something that Germany did much less of because its production is higher up the value chain than Italy's. Next, we discussed Italy's large public debt burden, something that everyone is aware of and which forms the basis of many of the negative assessments of Italy's economic prospects. I finally got to ask an economist about a measure known as the primary surplus, which I have always found confusing. What you are about to hear might surprise you if you consider it in the light of the often repeated refrain that Italy's government is profligate in its spending. Public debt was already high in the early 1990s, basically because of legacy debt from the 1970s and 1980s during a period of Strong international interest rate increases, public debts in Italy increased from about 30% to more than 100%. And uh, whereas, as Italy entered the euro area, basically um, the constraints in terms of abiding to the fiscal rules uh, also became, um, became more important. Um, and I show that basically fiscal policy has been very restrictive uh, in Italy and this contributed to reducing uh, demand for goods and services uh, within Italy. And this has uh, further contributed to stagnation of the economy. And if you put these factors together, what you see in Italy is uh, basically economic stagnation for, for 20 years, which has been the breeding ground for fatalism uh, in, instead of optimism. Uh, and it's very difficult, uh, given the current set of uh, institutions and rules uh, within um, the euro area, for Italian policymakers uh, to do something to kind of break this path-dependent uh, development. And I think okay. that is something that is not, not often not recognized in the public debate in, in Germany. And 
similar to other countries, uh, Italian politicians have have certainly made a lot of uh, mistakes, or you could point to several uh, several things they could have done better. Um, but it doesn't really make sense to blame them um, for for this for these longer term trends. I think you, you um, make you make a point about the the primary surplus that that Italy's run for for a long period of time, and and I, I've always mm. wanted to. Uh, so I mean, a pr- primary surplus is essentially you know, your 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 government budget um, excluding interest payments, right? If I yes. if I think about the primary surplus, though, and I've always wanted to ask an economist this, I I don't know the answer. Um, why is that important? I mean, if I if I think about it from my own home point of view, if if I have um, you know if I have an income of a thousand a month and and I spend eight hundred on on various things, you know to gas bill and food and what have you, I have a 200 euro primary surplus, which is great. But then if I've got a 500 euro mortgage payment to make, I'm still in in trouble. How is it useful for us to think about a primary surplus when we know we've got to pay our interest? Well, it's more under the control of the government. And why is it important to look at the primary surplus, especially in the case of Italy, well, because it tells you uh, it tells you a pretty simple story, uh, which is that I mean, there's legacy debt from the 70s and 80s, and there were certainly um, mistakes uh, by, by policymakers in the 70s and 80s, which allowed uh, pretty much this, this strong increase in public debt. And from then on, um, there were several rounds of larger. Uh, fiscal austerity packages, so kind of trying to cut cut government spending uh, in various areas, and also um, increasing taxes to kind of um, meet the the payment obligations of, of of the government. But what what the primary surplus shows is a, a consistent effort having higher revenues than 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 um, than government spending. Um, and this is more under the, the, the direct control um, of the government, and it's also an indication for um, for several players that uh, the Italian state is is kind of able to generate more in terms of tax revenues than than it is spending over over a longer period of time. I mean, certainly uh, that is something that uh, some critics have also pointed to. Well, okay. Uh, it might be true that they they were running these large primary surpluses, but um, but who cares? I mean, they have to because uh, of uh, the high debt burden um, they inherit from the from the seventies and eighties. Then I ask the question: Should we not discuss what the economic and political um, effects and side effects of running these large primary surpluses has been? I mean, what I show is, and this should be uncontroversial, IMF data show that there is no other country in the world um, that has done so much uh, to to cut back on government spending and to increase taxes um, to to meet fiscal um, consolidation uh, requirements and to kind of meet um, payment obligations. There's no other country since the early 1990s that has been as as strict um, as Italy. And it has not really, uh, really helped uh, the the country to uh, improve debt sustainability either. I mean, uh, public debt the public debt burden came down a little before the financial crisis, but what you what you see now is basically a jump after the financial crisis, and now another jump because of the effects of the COVID crisis. 
The unavoidable conclusion from this discussion is that accumulating a high debt burden is like jumping into a cactus. Easy to do, but much harder to extricate yourself from afterwards. So does this mean that a sovereign debt default is inevitable at some point in the future for Italy? When I asked Philip about this, he brought up the issue of the costs of servicing Italy's debt, which is currently quite low at about 3.5% of GDP, compared with decades ago when it was well over 10%. Mario Draghi is also on record as noting this factor, namely that debt isn't really a problem because interest rates are low and are likely to remain that way for the foreseeable future. But something about this doesn't ring true to me. It implicitly puts Italy on a path where the interest rates of tomorrow are going to count much more than those of today as the overall stock of debt increases. Put in simple terms, if I take out even a 0% interest loan and then spend all the money, at some point I'm going to have to refinance that debt and I will be vulnerable to the market conditions at that time. The big danger is if you already have such a high level of public debt um, to GDP, and that was also apparent in the current crisis, you're more fragile. Yeah? And um, you, you can run into problems when um, basically investors start to panic and the central bank is, for whatever reason, not willing to, um, to stay behind you and support you, um, which was partly a problem in 2012-2013 when interest uh, rates increased a lot for, for Italy and other countries. The, the question how to deal it, I would say um, what, 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 what should happen is countries should try to grow out of the debt. Okay? I think it will be counterproductive. And that should be one of the lessons um, that we should learn from um, the euro crisis. It's counterproductive if you start to cut back on spending and to increase taxes too early uh, in the cycle when economic recovery um, has not been completed, and this can take, it could take seven or eight years. Um, the question in Europe is whether this is actually possible given the, the, the set of, of rules uh, on public finances. The path to growth sounds very attractive, especially when compared with the alternatives. The one thing we can say with some confidence at the moment is that the launch of the EU Recovery Fund has focused the discussions on growth and investment as opposed to austerity, which characterised the sovereign debt crisis of some years ago. Mario Draghi's position is enviable compared with that of Mario Monti, the last technocrat brought in to try and guide Italy through a crisis. The concern, however, should be how effectively the 200 billion euros in EU funds that could be made available can be spent. It's one thing to make a grand announcement about funds available for investment, and quite another to put those funds to good use at a micro level. There has long been a problem in Italy related to spending EU funds, a factor which is known as the absorption rate, where Italy doesn't make use of all the funds available. We also have to consider that even if the historically low absorption rate can be overcome, if the funds are spent in inappropriate ways, or worse still, in projects that have been infiltrated by organised crime, the recovery fund might end up being more of a curse than a blessing. In the next clip I'm going to play you, 
it should become clear quite how complicated some of these EU structures are, and how ignorance around how the EU works and suspicion over the good faith of the actors involved can lead to undesirable outcomes. The immediate situation is very difficult and uh, Draghi will um, need to show a credible plan because otherwise Italy will not even be able to draw on these funds because there is conditionality. I mean, that is also, also something that uh, must be underlined. So Italy is eligible for about 65 um, billion euros in grants. So basically money that will not need to be repaid. And about 37% of, of these funds um, need to support climate change goals. So basically, Italy needs to show that energy efficiency, um, this will kind of improve public transport that in the future allows to bringing down CO2 emissions. That is the, the 37% part. And then there's um, this 20% part of the total that is um, under the, the digitalization agenda of the European Commission, um, where you kind of need to show that you do something to improve internet infrastructure, um, it, that you do educational reforms that push uh, digital skills, uh, things like that. Okay, Otherwise, you cannot kind of draw on these funds. So it's not free money. You cannot do whatever you want. Um, and then in addition, there are kind of recommendations by the European Commission from the European semester, which play a role. And there, I think it will, it will be um, especially controversial um, with Italy, but also other member countries. And the question will be how tough will uh, the European Commission um, be in terms of judging, judging these plans? Um, I mean, because there are kind of requirements like, I don't know, um, reform your... Uh, pension system, uh, reform your labor markets. Um, and so there are very specific ideas of, of reform behind it, which are controversial and which also might not be to the liking of some of the, the players in the new uh, Draghi government. And so if the European Commission were to push on some of this, and this, this could also be a political problem domestically. Um, I, I don't know, obviously, how this will, um, how this will work out. Um, but that's why I said that both um, both parts, or both sides, will need to make an effort, right? I think uh, obviously it's uh, it's it's a difficult task uh, for for Draghi and the whole administration, as you said. I mean, this is a huge huge project. Um, I mean, come up with with plans to spend two hundred billion in such a short period of time, not not that easy to plan and implement. But on the other side, I think um, there are still big. Uh, scars from the euro crisis. So there is a lot of mistrust in all types of conditions from European institutions uh, because there is, was this experience in Greece, uh, but also um, other countries um, that these conditions are very harsh. Um, they they have, have partly increased the, the economic problems of these, these countries and um, most importantly, they have restricted the democratic process in these countries. And so that's why, for example, Italy has so far not used this new credit line of the European stability mechanism, which, uh, which has been, uh, which was made available before the summer, actually. And the reason Italy has not used this so far, which would provide very cheap loans attached to some conditions, 
is simply that it's politically toxic and uh, probably the, the former counter-government which would not have survived this politically because of criticism from the opposition. So there is a fine line um, and I think both both parties will need to uh, will need to move to make to make it work and it's important to make it work because obviously if this whole EU recovery fund project were to were to fail, um, if for example it turns out that uh, the size of spending will be much smaller because countries cannot draw on these funds because of some of the absorption issues that you mentioned um, and the impact will be smaller than, than hoped for. This will play into the hands of the critics, obviously. So the EU Recovery Fund is a great opportunity to make some improvements to the Italian economy. But it is a substantial undertaking and carries a large amount of risk. Failure will certainly have unpalatable outcomes. Policymakers will need to be bold to avoid um, a, a catastrophic outcome in the, in the years uh, and decades to come. Um, because I, I think uh, the outcome would, would be catastrophic if, if Italy were to leave. It would be a potentially fatal blow to the European integration uh, process, given how important Italy is uh, as an uh, economic and political power. Um, although there has been this, this stagnation over the last 20 years, and although there are uh, obviously problems within the country, I think um, important strengths of the country uh, remain, and that's why other EU countries should actually aim at keeping Italy as, an, as a partner. This will probably not, uh, not work um, if uh, we, we don't turn things around, because obviously another 20 years of, um, of falling behind is, is not in the cards for Italy. I think the political development would, would further turn towards uh, voices that want Italy to leave. Of course, we end up there in any discussion of Italian economics. The possibility of an Ital exit or an Exitalia, depending on your preference, either from just the Eurozone or from the EU. But either would likely have even more dramatic consequences for the EU than Brexit. Frankly, the discussion on this point is terrifying for those of us who are used to the EU and its benefits, because I challenge anyone to find, on purely a personal level, fault with the principles of freedom of movement for people, goods and capital. But now let's get into some deeply rooted problems in the EU, if not the entire developed world. And I just wanted to read out this, um, but it's from an article that I had read in the Financial Times, and I think you tweeted about it by, by Martin Sandbu about European identity. It, was, it goes beyond just economic considerations, but sort of highlights some of the issues that maybe we can just discuss briefly. Uh, and he says, G German Chancellor Angela Merkel has often made the observation that Europe accounts for 7% of the world's population, 25% of its economy, but 50% of its social spending. She means it as a warning that this much social spending cannot be sustained without faster economic growth, but it could more fruitfully be seen as an expression of identity. This is who we Europeans are, the historical route Europe took to confronting the disruptions of the modern economy and the continuing choice of how to do so today. And I think what I think Europe faces with the demographic headwinds that we have um, this is the, these issues need to be confronted on on a Europe wide 
basis. And it's difficult to grow your economy from a GDP perspective when the number of people in, in the country are shrinking. And that's, you know, I mean, that's been going on in Italy for a while now, not a huge reduction, but it is, it is true that, that the population is shrinking. And so how do we get past this issue that we've essentially made for ourselves? I mean, everybody in Europe promising ourselves too many, you know, too many goodies in retirement, if you like, you know, rich pensions and social security and all of that kind of thing. When many systems, and, and Italy is a prime example of this, there's nothing set aside in order to pay for um, for this social security. What to, I mean, that to me seems like the main challenge that we've got. If you look out from here to like, let's exclude things like climate change or whatever, but just up from a social situation, if we look out 50 years from now, the things that could develop gradually and inexorably through through demographic forces uh, are very hard to, to counter. What, what do you think about that? That's certainly an important secular, secular trend. Um, and I mean, in particular, when you look at Italy, um, the, the population is uh, is getting older and older, and also in, in other European countries. Something you did not mention, uh, what I think is even more important when you ask the question, well, can we afford our pension system? I mean, it's certainly very counterproductive if you have such a high rate of youth unemployment uh, and, and, and unemployed um, when you look at the, the working age population. Because those are those are basically people who then have to rely on unemployment benefits or other other types of, of, of income sources who do not kind of contribute to to financing the system to the to the full extent. Um, so that's also why I think the first question we need we need to ask is how how do we bring people to work, make people uh, contribute um, to 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 make also the the system sustainable in, in financial terms. So the labor market developments are crucial, and that's why also it's kind of very difficult to, to forecast uh, what's going to happen to the pension system in 40 or 50 years, because it depends crucially on, on the macroeconomic uh, developments and, and how income of, of important um, parts of the population will, will evolve. Uh, and that's why I think it's, it's absolutely critical to do something about long-term unemployment, to do something about uh, youth unemployment. Um, I mean, that's where I would start, yeah? Uh, and then we can also have the discussion um, where, where privileges should be cut. It seems to me that this is a sensible way to frame the discussion. We know that we have an unfunded pay-as-you-go pension system that will only be sustainable if the workforce contributing to it is thriving. Youth unemployment is a huge issue, and sorting that out would go a long way to improving Italy's overall economic viability. As a final question, I asked Philip what his priorities would be if he were in Mr Draghi's shoes at the moment. Well, the number one priority would be to um, to make the EU recovery fund work. Um, uh, to, to ensure that uh, there is uh, a good, good plan to effectively spend the money to have a maximum boost uh, also for, for employment and um, also support the, the long-term restructuring of the economy. Um, the, the, the second in priority for me would be to, to influence other um, 
other EU leaders when it comes to rethinking the EU's fiscal rules. I think uh, here the it, Italy's voice is, is crucial. And then the, the third and last priority that I would mention is, and he, he at least partly hinted at that in one of his first speeches, um, the, the, the geopolitical um, dimension and the the political relations dimension with other um, EU countries, where I think he can obviously contribute to, or where I hope he can contribute to improving the relations because of his reputation and because he's very well respected in many uh, EU countries. But um, I mean, the last thing I would say here is, I think there is also this danger that many people now see him as, as some kind of messiah um, who will uh, be able to, uh, to solve all, all critical uh, issues. I think there are important advantages um, that he um, has now uh, become prime minister given his reputation and that um, his voice will be heard in Brussels um, on some of the important issues. But we need to think uh, longer term. We need to think about political relations and economic developments longer term. Um, we cannot fall back into the old... Um, distorted narratives and stereotypes after after Draghi is gone. And I mean, from what, what we can say now is he will probably pr be prime minister for a, a one and a half years or something like that. And then um, there, will be, there will be elections and there will be a new prime minister. I think that about sums up our situation. There is a huge opportunity with the EU recovery fund, but there are attendant risks. And while it might be arguable that Draghi's arrival really has been able to refocus attention on the right priorities, he has but a short amount of time to make things work. Let's not forget that the current government in Italy is the 67th since the end of the Second World War, so the potential for disappointments, which can easily lead to a breakdown in the political support required to proceed with reforms, means that one should maintain a certain amount of scepticism about his chances of success. I'd like to thank Philip Heimberger for his contribution. Please check out his details in the show notes and follow him on Twitter if you're interested in being kept up to date with developments. Thank you for listening, and goodbye for now. <laughs>